What is happening, everybody? This is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. Today's guest is award-winning comedian, producer, and writer, Samson McCormick, who just so happens to have a show coming up here pretty quick on the 19th of this month at the Comedy Loft in his hometown of D.C. The link to purchase tickets is in the show notes. In this episode, we discuss the culture both in and outside the entertainment industry, including topics like gender ideology, the politically correct, and uncovering your true sense of self. I think you're going to dig it. And what a good reminder that there is no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. Samson, thanks for joining us on the Free Black Thought Podcast today. Where to begin? We could talk LGBTQ, we could talk PC culture, we could talk about identity. But you know, I think it's best that we just start at the beginning. How about you tell us about little Samson? Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And I think that'll give us some clues as to how you became the person you are today. Uh, well, first, uh, thank you for, for what you do. Thank you for for encouraging more free Black thought. Thank you for, for encouraging that. And I'm happy to be a part of this conversation, which which really does tie back to who I am and where I come from. I hatched out of an egg. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm originally from, from Southeast D.C. Yeah, Southeast D.C. And I grew up in Northeast D.C., um, it was really great because the first thing that I grew up seeing, uh, you know, D.C. is Chocolate City. So the first thing that I grew <laughs> up seeing was black people owning their own businesses, their own homes, churches, communities. We had the best mayor on the planet, Marion Barry. And, and it was just really wonderful seeing that. And I think it has helped to sustain me now. Um, you know, we talk about free black thought. One thing I think we can agree on is that we see a lot of a lot of oppression Olympics happening in our country where mm-hmm. people are encouraged to be oppressed. And some people love being oppressed. And I think, you know, starting from the roots that I started from in D.C., seeing black people own everything and empowering community that helped empower me. And so that, you know, I also grew up in the church. You know, and and we can have some debates about some of the practices in the church, but it definitely gave me a it it gave me a a a sort of stability that has allowed me to overcome certain obstacles. And then, of course, humor has been a huge uh, part of my life. So those were the elements of my childhood. And and I had to grow up really fast. Why did you have to grow up fast? Um, I had to grow up really fast because, well, I had a single mom and single moms sometimes if they you know when they're doing the best that they can when the best that they can sometimes the closest support that they have is their young child and so Mm -hmm. there were a lot of uh you know conversations and topics and life experiences that I was exposed to growing up that made me grow up so fast and and helped me to develop probably a much um a more sophisticated self-awareness than a lot of younger kids had and also I didn't have the I didn't have the type of entitlement that a lot of kids have because you know a lot of kids when they come into a room you know it's about them and so Mm -hmm. that's why you know you you see a lot of adults you know when they know kids are coming they hide and eat the snacks you know they sit in the car and eat their (laughs) french fries and um you know that's why but did you have siblings were you an only child I was my mom's only child. 
I do have two siblings on my dad's side. And I've seen recently, actually, on your on your Twitter feed, you really uplifting Black fathers um, and celebrating them. And I think probably maybe you're doing that out of like, hey, I'm going to push back against this narrative or stereotype that that the Black community, Black population doesn't love their fathers, that dads aren't involved. Does that kind of come from, is that just kind of a, a recent kick that you're on, like, you know, sh- shining a light on on Black fathers? Or is that something that's always been kind of part of your message? That's always been a part of my message. You know, I, 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 I have father energy myself. I've always been like a dad, like even my neighbors, <laughs> you know, my brother and my cousins and friends will always call, you know, like, hey, can you give me... <laughs> Can you give me advice about my relationship? Can you? Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I I don't feel like an old man, like sitting on the front grass screaming at kids, <laughs> but I, I definitely, again, feel very mature. And so um, I've always honored that uh, the, the griots and, and the patriarchs of our communities, um, you know, seeing those narratives that, black men don't love or take care of their kids sure there are some of those dads out there but if you take a close look at our community you know the the jewels of uh black fathers eyes are always their sons and their daughters for different reasons i've always had a a deep affinity for again black community black family i think i have started sharing it more because within the last maybe two years, I spent a lot of time evolving into a place where I know it's important to share that narrative as opposed to um, everything else that gets shared. Do you think that, what is the bigger issue? The stereotype or the belief maybe by many that Black fathers don't love and care about their children? Or do you see a kind of related topic that's maybe a problem, or maybe you don't think it's a problem. I want to hear your thoughts of an attack on masculinity. That's what a lot of people claim, that there's an attack on masculinity. What are your thoughts? And that's related to fatherhood, right? That's related to being a husband. That's relating to be a father. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Ooh, okay. <laughs> Let's go there. Um, yes, please. I, I definitely think there is an attack on masculinity. Uh, I mean, if you look everywhere, it's like everybody wants to be a woman now. Mm-hmm. You know, and why? And I think yeah. it's, you know, it's because of a certain narrative that is pushed. And of course, femininity and womanhood are valuable. But um, this isn't this isn't something that it shouldn't be the only place where we feel safe enough to find our sense of self, especially when, you know, we know that women aren't women aren't receiving a lot of the things that they should be receiving in the world right now. You know, let's make space for them and encourage them and support them. And I think the best way to do that is to have strong men to help reinforce Mm. that, you know, strong, responsible, emotionally intelligent, um, you know, self-aware men who protect the communities, protect the families, protect the women. Um, And that structure is that structure is. Is it can be a bit challenging to see right away in, in community if you don't know how to look for it or if you don't know how to create it. What are some of those things that you feel that women aren't getting that they should be? Um oh. Or the what what is it that 
you know, those strong men provide for women? Like, is, is it opportunities? Is it just pro- this, they're providing the safe space for women to do X? What did you, what, do, how do you see that partnership playing out? Well, for one, I, again, you know, I'm very family oriented. So I believe that there should be a fa- more family structures in place and not just at home, but our community is our collective home. And so Mm -hmm. creating spaces where, you know, women feel protected enough to be, I mean, there are women who want to go out and, and, and run the world. You know, I I believe Mm -hmm. that there is space for that, but there are also a lot of women who, who want to be able to spend time with their kids and, and not, not be the men in our community. You see a lot of women who have been in the community and I just think that that creates a lot of um, imbalances. And so if I should get really personal, like having a single mother, I saw that my mother was, uh, you know, a little lady, five foot two, five foot three. But she when she wasn't encouraging me to be the man of the house, she kind of had to be the man in the house. In some ways, that was that was a bit emasculating. Mm-hmm. It, it was a bit emasculating. Um, and again, I'm not angry at at my mom or anything, but I definitely do believe that had I had my father there present in the house, um, I definitely think uh, she could have been much more effective as my mom. Right, because she wouldn't have had to play both roles and she could have leaned into her more feminine traits, essentially, is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, Um, she would have had the reinforcement that she needed to really be a mother. And a lot of mothers don't get to be mothers. They kind of have to be um, head of house. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that does create an imbalance in our community. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100% with that. And, you know, because you were, like you said, you had to grow up fast and you were in this dynamic where sometimes it sounds like your mom was sort of encouraging you to be the man of the house, but sometimes probably you just straight up couldn't, right? Cause you're 10 years old or whatever. And- it wasn't that, you know what I think it was. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, I think she, she wanted me to be the man of the house, but she also didn't want me to get too strong because I think she had a fear that if I did, I might, start overpowering her or maybe Mm. start selling drugs or whatever, you know, and we, we hear these messages reinforced, you know, don't, don't let that boy hang out too much outside. You know, it's, there's a fear. I've never been, um, I've never been like that. I've always very curious minded, you know, I would, I wouldn't have been, I've always been a business person. I would, I would have got in trouble. I would have got in trouble selling drugs. I would have been putting coupons on people's <laughs> cars or something like that, trying to get sales. Um, but there was just the fear. And I think that, you know, again, if there isn't that reinforcement there, um, because I think many women do handle the responsibility of, of family a lot differently when they're single, if they aren't so educated about certain things. There mm-hmm. is that element of fear there that they raise the children with, especially boys, and it can be a bit disruptive. And I can attest to that because I know at almost 40 years old, I'm still, you know, going in and and, and fixing things. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I got to let this go. I got to change mm-hmm. that. 
And I think also being raised in fear, you go through your life living in fear. And I think that that is something that affects a lot of um, that. That's something that can affect a lot of minorities if they don't truly learn how to stand in the power that that we have. Were you able to find male role models through the church or were you still what was that like? What was that dynamic like growing up? Is that did your mom's? Try, try to be like, here, here are some men in our church. Let them lead you. Let them guide you. Kinda. But again, I was, I was her little man. So mm-hmm. she didn't want to share me with anybody, but I was running away. I was, I, we had a uh, Deacon, Deacon Bumbray. He was the one who taught me that there was more than one, one fork and spoon and knife at the table. So, you know, he was like, here's your, your, uh, your your dinner fork and here's your steak fork and here's your soup spoon and here's your dinner spoon and here's your steak knife and you know he showed me all those different things took me fishing and I really really love spending time with him but he um he had his own son so he had to juggle me with that but he was great um and he was just a gentleman he was such a gentleman I can still see him in my head he was just a tall really strong handsome man and, you know, even even having me be exposed to that when I was, I, I recognized how my mother responded to that differently. There was some ease in, in how she, um, when I had those relationships, there was a bit of ease in how she mothered me in those moments that looking back helped me realize why those family structures are important. If there's a single mom listening to this now or somebody who knows a single mom and she's like, look, I'm a single mom. It is what it is. I'm raising a son or maybe sons. Obviously you don't want them to have that fear. You want them to, as you said, kind of stand in their own power, but are there any other kind of very tangible things that you would recommend for a single mom in terms of navigating, raising a boy or boys by herself solutions? Is it the church or is it some, some other kind of community support? What do you suggest? I think it can be, it can be the church, but I mean, um, I think it takes a lot of very active learning. Um, I think we kind of, uh, if we aren't careful, we, we kind of are given these narratives about how we have to do it. And so I think that um, I think there's a certain structure that needs to be there, but there also needs to be an element of freedom that allows those young children to, you know, young children or even teenage boys to be able to develop a sense of self. Having a sense of self is very important in this world. I didn't get my sense of self until I was in my 30s. That's insane. (laughs) And so. I look back on the ambition. I'm still very ambitious, but the, you know, when you're in your 20s, you kind of have this, you know, fiery, hot, wild ambition, kind of to take over the world. And again, growing up in D.C., I saw black people with money and having things, so I never bought into the narrative that anybody white could stop me from doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if in your head at the same time you aren't wired to reinforce yourself or you're you're having this really critical voice that you were given because you had parents who maybe didn't trust themselves and so they taught you not to trust yourself and those sorts of things um, that can be very detrimental and so I just encourage more single moms to um to to really 
really trust their boys. Trust mm. their boys. And and in trusting the boys, you know, don't blow up on them when they share something that's personal. Sometimes it takes a lot of courage to come and sit down with the parent and say, hey, this is what's going on. And it might be a little embarrassing or I don't want you to be mad at me. But, you know, creating, of course, the, the respect needs to be there, but also creating, you know, a, a bit of an open door policy where it's OK to make mistakes. It's OK to be who you are. It's OK to not quite know and, 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 and work to figure it out. It's OK to fail as long as you get back up, you know, creating that. I don't like the term safe space, but, you know, kind of <laughs> creating um creating a safe environment at home that provides sanctuary and reinforcement. That That's what home should be because when you go out into the world, you have to fight so many different battles. And so home, the home that you sit in and also this home that's sitting in between your shoulders, they need to be places of strong, positive reinforcement. And just, I think single mothers, especially who have one boy, you know, or two boys. Um, but I see this a lot with single mothers is just that fear. Like, I can't lose him. I can't let him. He will be fine. I promise you. So, well, actually, first, you know, you talked about humor being a big part of your childhood. When did you actually start doing humor professionally? When did you actually go, wait a minute, I think I can do this on a stage. I'm going to try this this comedy thing out. Oh, uh, so the first time I ever did jokes on stage was in fifth grade. I can still see it like I'm in the classroom now uh, at Concord Elementary School. I had Mr. Mufford was our social studies teacher and Miss Lynn. Uh, she taught us uh, math, reading and something else. And um, for some sort of way, both both classes ended up together. So we had about 60 kids in the classroom. They were waiting for the television to get pushed into the classroom. Um, you know, you remember when we used to get the TV days and everybody used to get yep. excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were excited. But the TV, we wait for a classroom down the hall to to finish with uh, with the TV. And so they said, well, Samson, since you like to tell jokes, you got 10 minutes. And I stood up in front of the class and, and told jokes and was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, 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 I also forget my second grade teacher, Miss Walters, uh, was another, was a very positive experience that I had. Um, because I grew up hearing, you know, white people are horrible. White people are this, white people are that. And so we had this teacher in our classroom and in, in our school. She was the only white teacher in our school. Her name was Diane Walters. And um, I remember going in her class and I thought, I'm going to run this classroom. <laughs> and I did for a couple of weeks, but she was sizing me up. And um, she pulled me to the side and she said, um, I don't think the work here is challenging you enough. Mm. And so what she did was she said, so I'm going to give you a couple extra assignments. She would give me a couple extra assignments. So I will get extra credit. She did that because I would skip class. And so the extra credit would help cushion for when I skip class. Oh, wow. Smart. Um, But I skipped class because it just wasn't challenging 
for me. Mm -hmm. And so then she would uh, she would have me to stand up in front of the class every Wednesday. And she said, as long as you do your work and get, get good grades, you can stand up every Wednesday and do humor. Oh, my um, gosh. That's so cool. And my grades went from C's and D's to A's and B's. That was the first time I made the honor roll. Wow. Um, she walked me to my mom's car after school every day. And um, and even at almost 40, having that experience when I was seven or eight or however old I was still sticks with me. It was just like the way she reinforced me, the way she encouraged me to stick with things. I'm, I'm so off topic. I promise I'm going to get back. I'm, I'm, no, no, this is great. Um even I even recently finished a, pro, a, a project. Um, I was just really mentally and emotionally uh, exhausted, and I had to finish a project. And so I was determined to finish it. And it took me back to um, that time period in the class when uh, I had this thing going on where I was just like, I can't do this assignment. I can't do this assignment because you know we had to like go. We had to check out encyclopedias and do research. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table doing it. It took me two days. It was a, what, Friday, Saturday, finished it on Sunday. And Monday I took it in. And when I got the paper back that Friday, that was the first A I got on the paper. Hmm. And so again, you know, even now I think about things like that. And that really helped me finish a project that I recently uh, had to power my way through. Um, but with all that being said, those were the first uh, experiences doing jokes in front of people. Um, I've always loved laughing with people. I've, I've always loved humor. I've always been naturally funny. Um, everybody's favorite cousin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, it was when I got in high school that my English teacher and my uh, drama teacher, who was impressed with nothing, nothing Im impressed her. She said, I don't like you. <laughs> she said, I don't like you, but I would be lying if I didn't say you might be kind of funny. Yeah. And so she said, I don't want you to waste your complete life. <laughs> she was cussing me out. She said, I don't want you to waste your complete life. So you should go and you should start doing, uh, you should do like a, a, a comedy night or something. And that was when I was 16 and um, and I'm almost forty, and I'm still doing it. Wow, so young! I don't is that is that typical of at sixteen? They're already maybe that is normal, and I just don't realize it. Some, um, but it depends. I mean, you have some. You know, Dave Chappelle started when he was sixteen, fifteen. You know, we had similar beginnings, sneaking in the back door, paying security our lunch money and stuff. And then you have others who, you know, 35 and 40 years old, like Phyllis Diller, who starts. So, I mean, it. I think it just, it's, it depends on that individual person's journey. What is it, how have you seen it change, kind of this PC culture that we, speaking of Dave Chappelle, right? People have been trying to cancel Dave Chappelle and, you know, maybe this is a good way for us to segue into some of the, like, pronoun stuff that um, you've sounded off on. But do you feel like you're, you're restricted at all by the like the culture that we're in or do you just not care and you're going to tell the jokes that you're going to tell um i think it's easy to look at somebody like dave Chappelle who basically just does his does his thing right he's going to make millions of dollars <laughs> people might try to cancel him he's uncancelable 
But if you're a, if you're not a, if you're not one of the most successful comedians in the world right now, like Dave Chappelle is, how do you navigate that? Are you, is there fear that you won't get that next gig? You won't be welcome at a certain, you know, theater or is, is it kind of overblown? Is there, is it, is it not as big of a problem? Cause I just read, you know, it's really hard to do comedy right now, but if it was the headline said, comedy's great, everything's going fine. That wouldn't, that wouldn't get clicks. Right. So what is that scene like? Oh, of course you're afraid. You know, I've always been a truth teller. I'm not, I'm not a phony person. And so I don't believe in going along with things because they're popular or they make everybody comfortable. You know, if, if I was that person, I probably would have never gotten into comedy in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our current times, because if you do just so happen to have an opinion about something, um, people will try to destroy you. Of course, there's an element of fear there. But I've always been a very optimistic person and I've always been a very faithful person. And I believe in myself so much And I know that I am so good at what I do. (laughs) And I live with so much conviction that no matter what, I will get the gigs that I am supposed to have. Hmm. And so I try for a long time to go along with a lot of the politically correct language. And, you know, you can't say that. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'm not going to say that. And you know, you can't talk about this. You're going to hurt somebody's feelings and you can't do this and you can't do that. And then it just got to a point where not only did these people not support you and want to tell you how to do comedy, but they also don't have a sense of humor because if you have any sort of sense of humor, you're not going around telling people what they can't say because you know how to go. If somebody says something you don't like, you know how to go, well, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's something healthy about that, being able to say fuck you or uh, come back with a, a, a something, a smart ass comment of your own. Right. You know, but a, a lot of people like being crybabies now and they like to blame it on everybody else except for themselves. And so I think where I had the capacity for many years to pacify people's feelings and and things like that. It just got to a point, I think it was the pronouns that really did it. I'm going to tell you, it was two things that did it. It was the pronouns, because it's not just call me what I want to be called. It's also, and you can't speak like that because that's rooted in patriarchy. That's rooted in white supremacy. Nobody should laugh at that because that's racist. And it's like, how are you people living? Yeah. You know, in order to to exist in the world and be able to laugh at the things that are happening, you need need to be able to call things just as they are and laugh about them Mm -hmm. and have a sense of humor about yourself. And so it got to a point um, where I was just like, okay, I'm done. Fuck it. I'm going to just say what I want to say. Is that part of you finding your sense of self that you talked about? So kind of before that point, you were kind of trying to go along to get along and then I wanted once you... people to like I wanted people to like me and I was scared that you know if they didn't like me I wouldn't work but um I sell drugs too now and no, I'm just playing but um <laughs> you know it's I, th- <laughs> I think I was I was just afraid that you know if you had people talking about oh especially on Twitter like I I, I remember thinking back in the day 
Oh, I'm glad I never share my real thoughts on Twitter because I would really piss people off. And now I just, I don't care. I have found people that love it and they egg me on even more. Yes. And they're like, well, I'm happy that there's somebody with a public platform who is being honest about the bullshit. And so um, I just wanted people to like me. Um, I was desperate for them to laugh no matter what. And um, it's you do that and people still come back and complain and try to do things to um, destroy you, basically. You know, you make one little mistake. Like I, I went and did a, uh, I did a news program back in March, and they asked me about pronouns, and I said, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm old school. You know, uh, I think if you want to want somebody to look at you and know what you are, you need, and you want to be a she/her when you come out the house, you need to look like it." Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was anything hateful or unreasonable, but I got called all kind of transphobes and yeah. bigots and this and that. And how is that any different from something that a drag queen would say? Or if you know anything about Vogue culture, if you call yourself a she, her or a lady of the night or any of those things, and you walk into a Vogue ballroom setting and you don't look like it, they will chop you. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's hypocritical. And, you know, some of these movements have people attached to them who, who don't want equality and representation. They, they want their sense of self and personhood to be derived from how they can control other people and make those people respond to them. And if they don't have that, they freak out. You know, for instance, like back in the day when I was growing up, if you were a trans person, and I love trans people, I adore, always have been a big, you know, support of the trans community. But growing up, those girls would have big old biceps. They would have stubble all over their face, Adam's apple, deep voices. They would put on a wig, big ass feet and a size 14 <laughs> high heel with a skirt, balls hanging out the skirt. <laughs> <laughs> and purse on their show, on their, you know, on their elbow with a brick in it. <laughs> and they didn't care about you misgendering them. If you accidentally called them sir, or, or even if you meant to call them that, they didn't care because they knew they were a woman. Mm-hmm. They just, they knew they were. And so they didn't care whether you approved of it or not. They understood that was your stuff. They own who they were. But now a lot of these folks, they need for you to acquiesce to them. And if you don't, they have to stop everything that's happening and they got to make a scene out of it. And they like to try to destroy your life. And, um, and that's not realistic. Uh, that doesn't, you know, render us a s- stable society in any sort of way. And I think that's dangerous. And that actually moves you further from two things. It moves you further from your sense of self, knowing and being able to own who you are. And it also causes you to lose allies because people have to like you in order to want to support you. When you, when you were coming into your sense of self, it sounds like you were kind of, you weren't trying to control other people, but before Absolutely. that, your sense of self was determined somewhat, at least, by what other people thought of you, right? Because you wanted people to really like you. And now that's not so much your attitude. It's more like the the folks that you were just describing. You know who you are. It doesn't really matter what other people say because you you know who you are. You know what you're all about. You know who you aren't as well. But 
was there sort of an aha moment that put you over the edge in that for your own personal sense of self? Or was that a kind of more of a gradual self-discovery that happened? I'm just, I'm always so curious as to how people can come to their resiliency. Like someone like you, that's a, that's a free thinker. What made you, because it sounds like you weren't always necessarily that way, at least publicly. Internally, you were having these thoughts and you were like, you know, like you said, if they saw my real thoughts on Twitter, then that would be bad. But <laughs> what what was that breaking point? Was it just, you mentioned pronouns, but I don't know if that applied to your personal kind of self-sense, um, well, sense of self-journey. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, it, it was a big part of it because, again, I, I spent... That was a breaking point for me creatively, um, but mm. I, I just know in in my life I spent a lot of time. I wanted people to like me, so you know I just went through life being the person that everybody would like. Mm. And so I think uh, you know I think after you do that and you, you do get taken advantage of a couple times, or you you learn lessons where you learn you actually might have been better off just voicing your opinion or just showing up as who you are. Um, I think people definitely respect you a lot more, even if they don't like, they might not like it, but people don't like themselves. So you shouldn't worry about people liking you. Mm, Um, That's a money quote right there. You know, they, you know, people don't approve of themselves. People, um, their opinions change like the wind. So you can't get too caught up in people's opinions and, and things like that. Um, I think it was a gradual process, though. And I, I think I, I I internally had a strong sense of self and was curious, very strong-minded. Because when I was younger, I don't necessarily mean physical ass whoopings, but, you know, life and situations can whoop your ass. Mm-hmm. And so I think because I didn't know any better, you know, I didn't know how to fight. I knew how to I can fight. But, you know, I didn't know how to you fight for yourself sometimes by the way you show up, what Mm. you stand for, what you're willing to voice your opinion about, be honest about and stand for. And, you know, somebody says, you know, like now you can tell a person, well, I don't, you know, agree with such and such politically or socially. And they will go, well, I can't be friends with you. And, And there is a certain strength in being able to go, well, you know, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do that five years ago. And so I just think it's it's a gradual process and it really does come from trial and error. And it also, uh, it just comes from really learning how to like how you do things and be okay with, be okay with you and how you do things. How does someone know if they're kind of on this journey and maybe they're starting to break through some of their own walls and their own fears? How do they, how does someone know that they've sort of arrived, that they have found their sense of self? I mean, I think you probably would say there's a continuous journey of, of life. You're always discovering and bettering yourself and all that kind of thing. But how do you know you've kind of broken through those walls? Is it just the fear is gone? You know, you don't, fear doesn't, does it keep you shackled anymore? Are there are there other ways that you kind of know, okay, this is it. I've arrived. I think you are constantly checked. So I think what happens is we create limitations on ourselves by bowing to certain fears. And so you start to live within certain limitations. And so I think, um, you know, it, what I think is the most effective, and I mean, people's journeys are different, but... Having something in your life that you truly love, that you wake up for every day, 
is what usually gives you the courage to um, continue moving forward and, and learning and overcoming. Um, and so that is what allowed me to recognize certain fears that I had. And because I love what I do so much, and, and <sighs> this sounds horrible, it's not love life, but so interested in life and so curious and so determined. Mm. You know, people, you don't love life. Yes, but we can use other words sometimes. I yeah. am so determined about life. Yeah. That there are things that I, I know I deserve to have. There are experiences that I deserve to have. There are ways that I see myself showing up. And so in doing that, a part of the journey unfolding is recognizing, you know, okay, well, if you want to get to this next part, here's where you have to challenge yourself within this limitation. And so that's where, you know, you have to start facing those fears. And then that's where you find the courage to either overcome them or I don't want to say fight with them or battle with them. There's a much better word for it and not even make peace with them, but you are, uh, you're facing things in your life where you can, you learn to navigate it better. Hmm. You yeah. learn to navigate it much better. And you you gain the trust in yourself to do it. And so in doing that, you now have the grace. You give yourself grace. You know, uh, like I told you earlier in the conversation, a lot of us um, ambitious people, when you are younger for whatever reason, you want to take over the world and you don't understand that that that's a journey. You can you can have your little piece of the world, <laughs> but but there's a it's it's a journey. And so as you get older, you rec for, number one, your energy changes. You know, you can't even eat a burrito and, and go to bed no more. You got to sit up for an hour. <laughs> <You> <laughs> Everything changes. And so you recognize, okay, well, for the things I want to do, if I make a mistake, I can't beat myself up. If I have a shortcoming, I can't beat myself up. You realize you got to get up and try again. You know, you, you take things in small pieces and you try your best every day and you get there gradually and you keep getting better over time. Excellent. And, and you have, I want to talk about where you think identity fits into all this because you actually mentioned earlier to that there's this kind of oppression Olympics going on. And I find it interesting too, as to what people sort of latch onto about themselves and identify as. So, you know, if you're a lot of people who are half black and half white, like I am, they identify as black yeah. because they, they almost like want to ignore their, even if, their white parent was a wonderful part of their life, right? Like everybody says Obama was the first black president. They never say he was the first half black half or mixed president or like it, even though his white mother was the one that was more involved in his life, her her ethnic background is is rarely brought up and I see that if if you're a a white woman who's a lesbian, it seems like those types of women tend to identify as a lesbian first, because I'm assuming that they think that that'll get them more oppression points and okay. then a woman and then white. Right. And you have a really interesting line in your, in, in one of your standups that I watched where you said, 
you might be gay, but you're also black. And you said, I'm a black man first. And I think that's, that's interesting because I don't know if all gay black men would say that first now, because like, like you said, oppression Olympics, they might be counting and like kind of measuring and be like, it's actually going to be more beneficial for me to lean into, to being gay and then being black will come secondary. But for you, it's the other way around. Are you agreeing with what I'm with what I'm seeing? Are you disagreeing? What are you thinking? And why are you a black man first? Now, with that, I've never really thought that deeply into that. Even though, like, I'm I'm out on the West Coast, and I again, I'm from I'm from DC, so that's I just knew I was black. You know, you're black. <laughs> And so that's why I've always said I'm black first. Like when people, if I sit, if I sit and I'm quiet and and nobody knows anything about me, um, you know, people can go, oh, yeah, look at that man. But okay, what color is he? Mm-hmm. That's a black man. And right. so they see a black man first. Okay, mm-hmm. now if you come and sit down and you say, okay, well, um, do you have a wife? No. <laughs> why don't you have a wife? Well, because I like guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you're gay. So now you have discovered I am a black gay man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just practical identity for me. When I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area is when I first really recognized yeah, and went to a lot of those queer spaces because I heard in, in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, well, Oakland, especially but in the San Francisco Bay Area, that is where you are the most disadvantaged if you are a straight white man. Mm. And so I didn't know what that meant until I would go in spaces. And I've, I have never felt oppressed. I have, I have adopted ideas because I didn't know any better. Like um, I used to say all the time, oh, well, you know, the, the comedy industry, these comedy clubs, they won't book me because I'm gay. And it took me years of recognizing they know that I'm funny, but comedy clubs have to make money. And so they know that gay audiences do not show up for their artists. Mm. And so unless you have a significant following that translates to financial revenue, they will not book you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's business. Right. You know, because you'll get a comedian like, a, you know, Gerard Carmichael or Wanda Sykes and, you know, Ellen, you know, they have audiences and they can get in any club they want to. So mm-hmm. it's, it's business. But I was insulted because I was like, but I'm also very talented. You can if you're not careful, you can get caught up in things like that. Once I recognize that. I recognize that sure I you know I I I really love my community but at the same time I have to also get myself into different markets. Once I did that, I started selling out clubs and I started getting booked. People get caught up in I can't I can't I can't. Now, I go back to that to say to our original point that we were making to say so when I first moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, that was where I was introduced to vi- Victim Olympics. I always I always had this idea that if I wanted to do something, I could do it 
which is the last point that I was making about the comedy and things like that. I knew yeah. I was funny, but I got stuck on, oh, I'm, I'm gay. So, you know, whatever. And then when I would, you know, go in spaces, they would kind of reinforce that because I would go, no, I know I can do this, but. When you say go in spaces, you mean like go to queer. Queer, uh, queer political, you know, I've always been very involved. Um, so you might, it might be a queer political group or, you know, oh God, don't go to poetry night. <laughs> yeah. uh, especially at poetry night. Uh, and they'd be like, no, well, you know, yeah, you are talented, but they won't book you because you get, and it, it gets, you get, it's easy to get caught up in this. So you're gay. You got that against you. Then you're black. You got that against you as opposed to going, no, let me find my people and let me find people who want to hear about this. So you didn't hear as much that you weren't getting booked because you were black. It was mostly you were being told because you're gay and then like, oh, and, and then you're black too. So that doesn't help either. It it was usually being gay that people focused on when they were trying to explain to you why you weren't getting where you wanted to get? It was gay a lot because um, I've been around for a long time. I've been doing comedy for over 20 years. And especially back then, there were no uh, gay comedians running around. I was like one of the only black gay comedians. Mm. Me and Andre Kelly. I was on the East Coast. He was on the West Coast. Again, just looking, looking at... If we can be very honest, you know, looking at number one, I just I've always put out great projects, number one. But I think in, in a lot of our communities, a lot of people have an idea that if they support somebody else's success, it'll take away from theirs. And yeah. I think a lot of especially black gay men, a lot of black gay men have, have celebrity complex. So, you know, they. Why am I support? What's special about him? I'm special. You know, you got to deal with that sort of thing in the community. And so that's why it's always uh, it's always really great when I come across other black gay men who are supportive and affirming, you know, and they go, we see what you're doing. We think you're great. We support you as opposed to, you know, you put out a great project and some people come trash it because they feel like they can't do what they want to do or because they just feel bad about it. Let's talk about one of your projects. I know you've had many. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your movie, Love the One You're With. I don't know if you want to talk about, just tell us, you know, give us the plot. You were saying you need to find, kind of find your audience, your audience for your stand up a little different than maybe the audience for this movie versus a book you wrote, you know, that kind of thing. Or maybe you create for the masses. I would love to hear about that as well. Oh, thank you. So number one, uh, Love the One You're With is a great movie. I'm so proud of that movie. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, it came out in 2021. It is a dramatic comedy that I wrote to get over a, a knucklehead who tried to break <laughs> my heart. And so uh, it stars uh, Donnie Hugh Frazier, who also recently wrote uh, a film I directed called Ruse Blues. But I wrote Love the One You're With. Um, shout out to Donnie. And also uh, Danny Royce is in there. Uh, Jeffrey L. Jones Dixon Jr., who I'm so proud of, is in there. Directed by NAACP uh, Theater Award nominee Spencer Collins. 
the plot basically is just about it's love the one you're with. You know, it's about a uh, I don't want to give it away. Y'all need to go watch it. Go watch it. I'm not <laughs> gonna say that. Go watch it. Okay. I promise you will scream at the TV. You will throw popcorn at the TV. You will eat the popcorn. Yes, because it's a great story. So you're going to throw the popcorn at the TV and eat it. It's such a good story. You will laugh and scream at the TV. And and it's a fun ride. Uh, I'm so proud of the work that I do. I'm, and as I get as I get more experience with what I do and as I get older, it just keeps getting better. And so love the one you're with is, is great. Um, and then to answer your other question, I think that I am just, I'm everybody's favorite cousin. And so mm-hmm. I've always, uh, I've always been able to connect with audiences that look different from me. You know, I, it's crazy. I was in, uh, you know, when we were all on lockdown during uh, the pandemic, well, while we were all pressed in the panini, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, that was the first time I had not been on the road since I was a kid. And I was thinking, wow, I can't believe that all this was happening. And I was thinking about it. Here I am, a black gay dude, you know, very small team, all independent projects. And I'm getting booked doing sold out shows in Billings, Montana, Jacksonville, Alabama, yeah. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida, Des Moines, Iowa, Kentucky, uh, Ohio. Uh, where else have I been? I've been to uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Arizona. Uh, I was in like this really small town. I was in Bisbee, Arizona, which is I know like that. one I of know those. I know Bisbee, yep. You know, Bisbee is like one of those, mm-hmm. the hills have eyes kind of town. Yes, yes. But also <laughs> cute. It's also a cute place. It's cute, but don't smoke weed and go outside. Because <laughs> <laughs> you might trip out a little bit like, wait, what is this? Um, but I went there and, and we had a 200 seat theater. It sold out. I've been doing all these shows all over the country for years. I always thought that since I am a black gay man, I thought my audiences would be, you know, New York and L.A. and Miami, but they weren't calling me. And so wild. Are you saying you were having more success in these small, like rural towns? Yes. Than you? yes. Wow. Wow. Yes. And it was nuts because, yeah, I mean, my gay men come out, but it's a certain type of gay man. Like they're married or they're old. Right. (laughs) The lesbians have always supported, but it's like everybody else. I've never had a hard time getting straight people to come out. White people come out. You know, they might just see a YouTube video and then look me up and see I'm coming and they buy a ticket. And Mm -hmm. I remember I went to Louisville, Kentucky, and um, a bunch of white people came out and they were just so sweet. Again, I've never had the. There are a lot of queer people. Black people, a lot of queer people of color who, you know, white people. And I've never had that kind of attitude. Mm. So I don't. There are some of them who are like poets and stuff that might get booked, but they wouldn't go because they're like, why would I go to a. And I have gone and I find that those people are supportive. They're curious. They're more level headed than some of the people in some of these bigger cities. And also something else that's worth highlighting is 
if you really travel the country and take your time and talk to people and relax, people aren't as racist or homophobic as we're all always told they are. Yeah. You know, I remember when I first started going to like little small towns, you know, black people, we, we do play a game called Find the Black People. And mm-hmm. Call up right. Okay, so I've been out for two hours. I only seen one, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, you know, you're running around looking. And I, I mean, there are parts of me that still do that. You know, okay, let me see how many black people I see. But it's also their great experiences. And you learn a lot. I got to ask you about, we're, we're creeping up on an hour here, but I wanted to get your opinion on, in my world, in my mind, what's been kind of like the biggest gay movie recently, which is Bros. What did you think about that movie? Because I have heard mixed reviews from from gay men. Some are like, I loved it. Some like it was really funny, but I had this problem with it. And some I have a friend who straight up walked out of the theater, a gay, a gay black and Hispanic man who was so turned off by the movie. He walked out because I guess he didn't like the stereotypes or or something about it. I don't, I'm not really sure. We didn't get into it, but I just know he left the theater. <laughs> so what are your thoughts? So two things. I personally liked it. You know, um, this is what I'm talking about. It is important for us to show up for these films because five years ago, well, I mean, it, there were some, but I mean, the way that movie was advertised, we weren't seeing anything like that. The rollout for that film we have never seen a gay movie advertised like that in that yeah, capacity. I so that agree, was yes. Huge. Yes, there were some gay films in the theaters, but not in that capacity. And so when we see that, if we would like to see more, it's important to support. That's how we get things is support. This is business. So people have to see that there is a market for it. Right. You know, if, if they know that the community is not going to show up for it, they're not going to want to give it a platform. And so, mm-hmm. again, you know, we can't cry. Nobody's giving us anything if we aren't supporting the efforts that we see. With that being said, though, I enjoyed the movie. You know, it was just like any other romantic comedy, except for it was gay, so it followed that formula. Um, but I think the key to writing great gay movies, I don't like to call them gay movies, but uh uh, the, the key to writing uh, films with, with LGBTQ subject matter is to have the characters in there, but write them in a way that they're relatable to everybody. So yeah. keep out like there's certain like when I write movies, I do keep love scenes. I want to say to a minimum, but I keep them uh I do them very classy about the way that I do them. I'm very, you know, um, I think people are, there are people who are curious about LGBTQ stories, but some people do need to be baby fed certain things. The, mm-hmm. the first thing that we need to do, I think, and this is something that works very well for me is people, you have to be somebody that people would, people could see you babysitting their kids or, you know, you're somebody that, that, like, their kids would be safe around. Mm-hmm. And so the the things that I put out, the characters in them, you wouldn't feel, you wouldn't be be too afraid to have those, those people living next door to you or at family dinner or whatever like that. That's really important. 
And I think that the I think that the queer community has skipped skipped over a lot of that because so many in our community are so radically liberated. And I'm like, most people that's a lot for some people. Yeah. So yeah. you got to give them give them baby steps. All great insights. I feel like we probably could talk for like another hour about all this Absolutely. stuff. <laughs> it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. But I want to hit you with my my 10 speed round questions and then give you an opportunity after that to close out with any final thoughts. Are you ready for the, the, the point of the speed round is just to try to answer the questions as quickly as possible, but people often fail at it. I'll just be honest. So don't put oh, too no. much pressure on yourself. To oh be no, so fast. Way, to, way to put pressure on me. <laughs> um, but there's no right or wrong answer. It's all for fun. So it's just for a way for people to kind of get to know you better in a fun way. Are you ready for the 10 questions? Yes. All right. Question number one, the Black Panther or Blade? Oh, Black Panther. Black History Month. Yay or nay? Yay. Is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or misunderstood? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the most beautiful woman in the world? Um, Caitlyn Jenner. No, I'm just playing. Uh, um, oh, wait, stop. <laughs> 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 the most beautiful woman in the world. Oh, um, I have a girl crush who's on Comedy Hype, Symphony Thompson. Should Election Day be made a national holiday? Yes. What is the wildest conspiracy theory that you low-key kind of believe is true? <laughs> um, conspiracy theory that I low-key believe is true. That some people in Hollywood have been cloned. Ooh, that is a spicy one. Uh, what is your go-to mixed drink? My go-to mixed drink is um, uh, uh, what is that? That ginger beer, ginger beer and rum. Are golfers athletes? Yes. Are the best things in life really free? No. Okay, and this last question, I have to preface it. I have a list of about forty-five questions, and whenever somebody comes on, I do a, I literally do a random number generator, and that's how I pick the question. So it's completely random what everybody gets to make sure, you know, there's a variety and we, we go through them. And this one came up for you. And I thought this is the perfect question. Number 10 for Samson. Who stand up do you prefer Eddie Murphy or Chris Rock? Ooh, Red Fox. What, what who do you think is the greatest? This is a bonus question. Who do you think is the greatest living comedian today? Chappelle. You do. Yeah. Yeah. That's who I tend to tend to say as well whenever somebody somebody asks me. Though I do love, I think he's under well, he's probably properly rated, but I have a real soft spot for um John Mulaney. I, yes, I what, what do you like about him? I just think he I find him to be very charming and like he's dork he's a dorky funny guy. I don't know. He's not very cool, though he's come so far in his career that he is cool now. A little extra money will give you a little swag. Right. Of course. Yes, that helps. Um, and he's obviously very successful. But uh, I don't know. He, and he's pretty clean. I don't think I, I appreciate that. I think it takes a little bit more effort to be to be funny and clean. Well, there's lots of comedians that aren't that are hilarious. Obviously, Dave Chappelle being one of them. Um, but anyways. I, I do like... Um... I'm I'm not a dirty comic. You know, I say little words. I like I like a little spicy language, but I do like those um 
after hours clubs that you got to sneak in the back door and then they're being just horribly nasty. I love those. (laughs) I don't think I've ever had that experience and probably won't for some time because now I'm just a fuddy duddy mom, but uh, I'll have to try to seek, I'll have to try to seek that out uh, when I get through these toddler years. Um, Anyways, Samson, final thoughts, things that, you know, you need to get off your chest, anything you want to promote or say folks, you can find information about, we didn't even talk about your books, movies, shows, all that kind of stuff on samsoncomedy.com. But what do you want to leave folks with? We live in a society now where there's a lot of hurt thinking going on. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to really stand up in who you are and say what's on your mind and really stand in that. It is so important now more than ever to not not bend. You know, a lot of people, they get bullied into thinking that they have to think a certain way or go along with a certain thing, even if they know it doesn't sit with them. Um, and, and, and I think some people cave and it's important not to cave, you know, it's individuality, freedom of speech, humor. Those are all things that are very important to society. And so please embrace those. You asked the question a couple minutes ago, are the best things in life free besides the things that you can pay for? I will say those are three of the best things in life that are free. Yes. Way to tie way to tie this up with a nice, beautiful bow, Samson. Thank you so much for coming on. We look forward to following your career. I hope to make it out to a show of yours someday at one point and hopefully then we can we can shake hands and, and meet in real life as well. So I'm looking forward that to would that. Be great. <laughs> Thanks so much, Samson. Thank you and thank you for what you do as well. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.